Hello, and welcome to this episode of Special Ed Rising, No Parent Left Behind, a show aimed at parents and caregivers of children along the spectrum of disabilities, but welcomes siblings, teachers, healthcare professionals, and anyone interested in learning about topics from the world of exceptional needs, educational services, health and wellness, fitness, nutrition for you and your child, and more. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm Mark Ingracia, and I have 34 years of experience as a classroom teacher, parent, coach, and advocate. I hope this podcast can inspire you to face your days more confidently, stirring a greater sense of self-love, mindfulness, an outpouring of goodness, and positive role modeling for your children, while remembering to attend to the areas of your own mental, physical, and if you're inclined, spiritual health, enabling you to be all you hope to be for them. Today I'll be speaking with Molly Prep, author of Cancer Angst, which follows Molly's coming of age after a childhood shaped by sickness and spans the period from her second grade diagnosis to her senior year of high school. Molly Prep is a reader, writer, fitness instructor, and life enthusiast. Her Instagram is at Molly Prep Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S. I'll post this on the resource page of my website. So please enjoy this open and honest discussion with Molly as we earn ourselves another win. Good morning, Molly. How are you? Doing very well, Mark. How are you? <laughs> okay. It's early, and I appreciate you getting up and uh, being here for this this conversation that I've been really looking forward to for, for weeks. And for full disclosure, Molly and I know each other from, we, we take boxing fitness, and um, I was someone who was in the in the ring with Molly and I'd watch her I didn't know her but I'd watch her and I'd say man this 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 girl has some incredible energy you know <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and uh, I know there's a lot of years between us but I just thought you know god I got to keep up with that that that's like it was highly motivating it was you are very highly motivating thank you I have um, a lot of energy <laughs> <laughs> you do you do and then I I happened to come across a flyer that that mentioned your book cancer angst and and I was I was shocked you know to think that this is the same person who's who's gone through something like this and so i'm just you know excited to share your story with with the world now so um, you i mean you have with your book and i want to get the word out more so that's why i was really eager to have you on today so thanks so much this podcast is uh intended for parents and caregivers of of, of people with challenges in life you know could be special ed disabilities uh, you know i've talked about people with dementia, elderly people, anyone. So here, here's an opportunity to kind of talk to parents who maybe are going through the same experience that your parents went through with children that are going through the same experience you went through. And you went through this at such a tender age and, and just trying to grapple with the sudden change in your life, the halt that suddenly was there and, and this <laughs> left turn that it took. I was thinking that if you could kind of share the sense of this impact that the book has been having on people as far as, you know, do you feel like it's touching or have you heard from parents who uh, have children who are going through this or have gone through this and maybe giving you some feedback and, and maybe your books help them a little bit? Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, it's an excellent question. I am definitely still in the midst of feeling a lot of these waves. Um, the book came out end of October. Most people got their hands on it around November and afterward, um, but I have started to hear from people and that's been really powerful because part of what compelled me to write this book and what I lived through was feeling like these things weren't talked about for a long time. Um, so 
to now have very purposefully and mindfully put my experience down in one place and then opened up these doors for conversations with other people, whether they have been directly affected by cancer or any anything that really throws a curveball at you in life, that um, whether that's a singular event or something ongoing and evolving, um, to be able to have these conversations with them already feels like a type of healing for me, and it seems like it's meaningful for them as well. Um, so, like one of the very first examples I can think of was um, at my book launch, which was in November. There was a woman there who I did not know. A lot of the people in the room were friends, family, friends of friends. Um, but then there were some people I had never met before. And she ended up sharing during the question and answer portion. And then afterward with me, she came up saying that she had had um, a lot of heart surgeries growing up and just an ongoing medical trauma, really, of trying to navigate what she needed. And now being in her adulthood and no longer needing to engage with that in the same way, but feeling all of these unfelt feelings, having all these thoughts that didn't that felt taboo, um, and that hearing my story made her realize that she had her own story and she wanted to try and write it and share it. And I'm, I'm very much of the, the notion that you don't owe anybody your story. Um, there's no linear mm-hmm. line of progress of saying, oh, now I'm well enough and I can tell everyone what I went through. You don't know anybody that. Um, But it seems like that's something she connected with. And to then hear her say that was very moving to just know that now these conversations are possible. So I haven't heard from parents firsthand yet of any parents who have a child either in or out of treatment. Um, But I've connected with some fellow cancer survivors and then other people who've been through something. And then some people who don't, directly relate at all, yet still feel that push and pull of different versions of themselves. Um, The way illness or a diagnosis can shape us, so to hear their thoughts and to have those connections has been very, very powerful. And I'm grateful that it seems like my book is creating that opening for them to start to have these conversations that can be so hard to have otherwise. That's so wonderful. I mean, I would imagine, and I want to ask you about this, you know, your initial motivation, but I would think that too, it might not be something that you initially think about, but in the, you know, retrospectively or or subsequently, you might think, okay, well, this is maybe I can help one or two people out there would be, you know, is, is a wonderful thing. And I can pretty much guarantee that there's parents out there who may never voice it to you who are grateful for this book, because it's such a detailed journey that you, you express here. And it's been a long journey, and I want to talk about how the journey continues for you, too. But can I ask you to reflect upon what compelled you to share the story in the first place? And did your perspective on the initial motivation change or as you were writing it or when you completed it before publishing? Because as I was reading the book, I, I, I realized that there was so much more to the story than just the cancer diagnosis and, and dealing with that. Maybe we can just start with telling us about the initial motivation for writing it. Yeah, absolutely. Great. So I first started the unofficial version of this book when I was in college, um, largely because cancer, its diagnosis and its treatment had continued to shape me. So I was, I was diagnosed when I was seven and in treatment for three years. And then out of treatment in remission, 
and physically well. We're still recovering in some ways, um, but cancer-free. But emotionally, there was a lot going on, a lot of processing that just never occurred. So from my childhood up to my junior year of high school, I didn't talk about that time. And it created a lot of shame, a lot of secrecy, a lot of stress. And it was only as I got to college, because I had started to share at the end of high school what was going on, or what I had been through, that I needed and wanted a space to explore all of those memories and feelings, really for the first time. So I used the construct of NaNoWriMo, which stands for National Novel Writing Month, where the challenge is in the month of November to write 50,000 words. And um, there are writers who use it as that discipline to just get words on a page to start their book. It doesn't have to be the final version, whatever it is. I decided to kind of use that as a journal construct. I wasn't much of a journaler then. Um, I definitely adapted to it now and I really enjoy it. But I found that construct and just put words on paper for no one other than myself, just to confront these memories, to think about how I was feeling. It was very meta at the time because in the middle I would, you know, write about writing and uh, there was no story, there was no plot, there was <laughs> no shape to it. It was really just processing. Right, um, right. So I wrote it, I did finish the 50,000 words in 30 days, and then I didn't touch it for two years because I was just like, oh, we're putting that back on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, done. And that was a lot to take in all at once. And then as college continued, I started to take some creative writing classes um, where I was working mostly on fiction and things unrelated directly to my experience. But then I started to bring in segments of it, of of that writing to just sort of feel out what it would mean to share some of these thoughts and feelings. And um, as I continued to go to these classes, I thought, okay, well, maybe, maybe I have a perspective here that hasn't been told. And I sort of started to revisit it and then once again put on the back burner. And then hearing from people and hearing that they hadn't known that someone could feel this way or sharing specific memories and not realizing that these sort of things happen in the hospital made me sort of start to think this could be something I want to share. And it was after graduating college that I started to go to a writing group. Again, bringing mostly fiction first. That's my uh, my first love. Mm -hmm. But then I started to bring in pieces of this book that were very fragmented still at the time and ultimately decided, I think I want to put this together in a way that has a beginning, middle, and end, mm -hmm. um, which is tricky to do when you're still processing and going through a lot of it. <laughs> I can imagine. I feel like there's there are uh, points I can identify of my relationship to survivorship really changing. So I started to shape it, started to share it, and just started to feel so much more empowered around my story. Um, it was a kind of reclaiming of the narrative while also spreading awareness to something that when I spoke to other cancer survivors, um, there were a handful that I kept in touch with after the hospital, they had mm -hmm. felt these things as well. And we just never had the opportunity to talk about them. So to realize that there was a potential for them to feel seen and heard. Um, and then for anyone outside of living in that world to know a different perspective and hopefully integrate it would be huge. And my goal right. in publishing this book was I wanted to get it off my laptop and to have it potentially make a difference to one person.
So I've been lucky enough to check both those boxes, I think, or at the very least it's off my laptop. I was going to say, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that really was my primary goal. I didn't, I don't have grand plans for it. I, I just think realizing that it was something other people felt, um, whether they were cancer survivors or not, but particularly in the world of childhood cancer survivorship, um, and realizing that I was ready and willing to share my own story, um, it just mm. felt natural to be like, okay, then we're going to do it. It's great. That's a long, that's a road, right? I mean, talk about your process. I mean, you have to understand it yourself in order yes. to be able to get it out there, right? I mean, yes. you have to be time. ready. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to be ready. One of the, the themes that came out as the book progressed in the years of remission was the sense of needing to control, find a sense of control in life. And that led to other battles in your life. Um, one significant one. Can you talk about that battle? you know, in your formative years. And I feel like the sense of control in life is something that everybody struggles with, right? When you are, when something is taken away from you at such a young age and you don't understand why, I can't even imagine the psychological damage that can do to a person. And you express it so well um, in the book. And so maybe you could share that with us a little bit. Sure. So a lot of the disorientation um, that came with being diagnosed and being in treatment was feeling like I had no control over my body. And um, both in the sense of being told something inside you is wrong, you're sick, you're unwell, uh, we need to fix it and change it and solve it. Uh, and also the treatments themselves being pretty invasive and upsetting. Um, mm -hmm. And with no context, just sort of being like, this is medically necessary. And you're going, okay, well, I guess that makes it fine, even though I'm very uncomfortable and confused and sure. uh, scared, uh, which there was just no dialogue around at the time. Um, yeah. And of course, there's there's pain, there's limitations uh, physically, and then socially, I was missing out on a lot right. happening with my peers. I was just going to be different for a while, mm -hmm. uh, measurably so. Right. And then out of treatment, it was kind of like you were given the stamp of approval. Of, hey, you're good now. Re-enter the world, have fun, just, just and go. see you later. And that's a wonderful, wonderful thing in some ways. Because it's like I got to go back to being a kid. Um, sure. I didn't account for that that missed time. Right. And that and that absence of what you missed suddenly leaves you kind of out there just bare <laughs> to the world, right? And what exactly. do I do now? Exactly. Yeah. So I would say the first couple of years after my treatment, um, there was a lot of like emotional sensitivity and starting to become critical of myself, feeling as I did within treatment as well. Like I'm here, I'm alive. Why me over some other kid um, when I was seeing other kids not do so well. Um, and then my mm -hmm. way of coping initially was also to then feel like I had to earn my place being here. So it was like, oh, I've got to be perfect. I've got to be the best daughter. I've got to be the best student. Uh, these are things I can control. Um, and it sort of stayed within that realm for a couple of years before uh, like end of middle school, entering high school, and really took a drastic shift to being like, well, and I need to be perfectly in control of my body whenever possible. And that manifested in the form of an eating disorder for me, where I was just very, very restrictive. Um, measuring my worth and sanity in pounds 
and feeling like, well, this is something I can control. I can control what I eat, control how I move. And um, unfortunately, uh, we live in a cultural society where losing weight and being thin is measured as a value and is considered representative in some ways of a person's worth and really not a meaningful value system. But unfortunately, it collided to then make me feel like I was doing something to be better or more worthy um, than I had been when I was heavier uh, or weighed more, I should say. Right. It was all perspective. It was all perspective. perspective. And and unfortunately, then, you know, I get I get people in my life who are praising me for weight loss because they're like, wow, you look great. I'm like, I'm not eating. (laughs) It's a very complicated Mm -hmm. thing. Uh, And as something I would never wish on anyone else, uh, yet made complete sense in my head for just myself. Like, I will be better if I weigh less. And um, Mm -hmm. some of that stemming from treatment, some of that stemming from, you know, whatever I was predisposed to, but uh, definitely a super challenging part of overall recovery because I was also a growing young person and just not taking care of myself because I thought that not taking care of myself was a way to make me better, which doesn't logically make sense, but (laughs) made a lot of sense to me at the time. Can you take us back to the time when you first learned of the diagnosis, what that experience was like for you at that stage. Just, you know, it doesn't have to be the whole story because I want people to read the book, um, but just to kind of give some insight. Sure. So one of the surreal things is I don't remember the actual being told um, you have cancer. Like that that iconic moment that I think uh, is referenced in a lot of other uh, stories I've heard. So that iconic moment wasn't something I recall experiencing. I remember going to the hospital. I remember being diagnosed. Like I, re- I remember that time frame, but I don't remember the moment of being told. And I just remember once I was there, knowing you're sick, you have cancer. And even mm-hmm. even in labeling it that, I didn't know what that meant for a while. It was just words, and it came it's along far, with yeah. right. all of these other things um, that I had no idea to expect. I was seven so i didn't know like what chemotherapy was i didn't know what blood transplants were i didn't know what different types of surgeries were maybe i had some sort of general understanding of a hospital um Mm -hmm. but i definitely hadn't experienced one firsthand and definitely didn't know what it would look like for me yeah i mean that's not an experience any any kid you know on average has so it makes sense right right um and then even what's out there in terms of existing literature or even media is not representative of what a child is likely to experience in a hospital setting. So there's this really wonderful book called Biting Off the Bracelet, um, which I just love that title, but it's a study of children Hmm. in hospitals. And it's a very, very powerful read because it talks about the expectations a child has for entering what uh, is called a total institution. And in fact, mm-hmm. the closest thing that could prepare them for something like that, not that anyone can be prepared, is school, because school has a structure to it. There's authority figures, um, there's uh, the individual, but there's also the group. So this idea that mm-hmm. um, if you're sitting in a classroom, it's not just all about you, like there's there's other moving pieces. 
But in fact, that is more representative right. of a, a hospital experience than existing books and TV shows and movies because they often portray a hospital environment as very different from the reality. So that can actually be more disorienting to think you're ready and then in some way encounter it in real time. I don't remember being told. I remember knowing and then just really being immersed in it. And some of that immersion, that comes with acceptance and surrender, really, because there's so much that has to happen. And especially in, in my treatment plan, it was very intensive treatment for the first month um, where I was just in the mm-hmm. whole time and receiving a lot of different treatments and uh, chemo and medications. You don't really have time to think right away. And I don't know if that's unique to being seven or if it's just sort of hmm. how it goes um, or how it goes as the system exists now, where there's It so seems much- like that would possibly be the case because it's like this assault right. upon you initially, right. right? It's just one thing after another as they're right. getting things going, right? Right. And I, yeah. I would like to think and hope that there is an opportunity to pause somewhere in there and be like, hey, how are you <laughs> beyond? Yeah, <laughs> sure that given moment of just I I think there's always room to make space to attend to a person's physical, mental and emotional well-being but that wasn't built in at the time and so you're just in it, you're in crisis mode and you're responding and that's why I think many of the things that I dealt with emotionally caught up to me later because that, Mm -hmm. that whole first diagnosis was just a flurry of chaos <laughs> and uh, yeah 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 i mean it made real sense the word you use the word surrender you know yeah. and you seem to be like the prototype for <laughs> surrender you were like the perfect patient in a sense um, right. and you talk about that you know you never answered back you wanted to be right you wanted to do the right things you want to make the doctors happy all those things and so you're kind of like repressing those feelings because like you said, other kids are running around and they're like, you're like, well, they're, they're getting better too, but <laughs> they're totally right. doing it, yeah, were, you know, in a very different way, you know? And, and so it kind of makes sense that all these feelings were not understood. How could you understand them at that age? And, and sitting there with just waiting to be let out of the box at some point. The contrast for me, this is a little bit of an aside, but I think important in my narrative of choosing to go forward with this is I have a neighbor, um, who's now nine years old, but was at the time four years old. And uh, we're very, very, very close. Babysat their family their whole lives, and they're just remarkable humans whom I adore. Um, But the youngest one, at age four, uh, started to have seizures, and she was diagnosed with epilepsy and uh, had only had one in school that no one really saw, but then had another one, and a pretty major one, when I was alone with her. So I ended up being the one to respond to get her to the hospital and all this other stuff. Wow. And it was a lot to take in because I hadn't been in a hospital setting myself in a long time. Um, definitely not in an emergency capacity. Right. And she's this, this tiny little person. And the way she was spoken to and moved around and... There's, there's an objectification that comes with being treated. And it's so hard right. because the treatment's necessary. You want the person, whether they're a child or an adult, to be given the medical attention they need so they can be well. And at the same time, 
sitting as that outside observer this time around. I was like, oh, this could be so different. And I was mm-hmm. grateful to be there because then I could talk to her. I could be that for her. Right. Because um, there was like this one procedure where she was uncomfortable, so she was laughing. And then suddenly she stopped laughing. And I was like, I just watched her close those emotional doors. And I was like, this mm-hmm. is terrifying. But then okay. it was... it. It was that moment where I'm like, okay, they're not saying anything. I can say something. But it's that feeling, that occurrence that I think gets me really fired up now because I was willing to excuse it in myself of like, oh, whatever, my feelings don't matter. Other kids were yelling and screaming. Like, this was just me. But then to watch it happen in someone I loved Mm -hmm. and to then be able to identify it in my younger self and have compassion for my younger self. It was like, oh, no, I I need to say stuff about this. Wow. (laughs) Wow. it's too important and Mm -hmm. there is potential for it to be different and i just think the more the more we talk about it the more we acknowledge that it's happening um because none of it's happening with ill intent you know the the doctors they're not doing this to traumatize a person Um, Mm -hmm. they're they're doing the things they need to do to help them to address their physical condition that needs addressing but i think there's room for accountability and change to address that it is a person you're dealing with, not just a patient. Absolutely. And I think how fortunate she was to have you and what wonderful insight for you, right? To, to be able to have compassion for your, for your younger self. That's a cause to be picked up, right? And, and to really try to find that its way into the system. How can we make that happen? You know, you spoke about, you referenced the doctors, how they were basically cold and you kind of, maybe, I don't know if you understood it at the time or retrospectively as you were writing the book, you understood that they had to be cold right. um, because to get emotionally attached is, is dangerous for them too. I, I love the Dr. M, how she, she was my favorite. Mine <laughs> <laughs> too. Yeah. <laughs> Did they ever find Nemo, the fish, right? Yes. She said she was looking inside you. Yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> didn't find her there. Didn't find her didn't there. Find no, there. but didn't find her there. No, but I just love. I loved how she how she dealt with you, and that if you read the book, they'll see. But that that's the kind of attention and kind of a connection, you know. Because I feel like you don't have to get emotionally connected, but you can take care of the person. You know, it, there's yeah. a difference. There's there, a difference. It doesn't have to be that all or nothing. Um, exactly. There are ways to be present with with a person and particularly in my case with a child, to help them feel seen and heard and as a, as a human. <laughs> it all comes down right? to that. Because literally just asking, how are you, right? Yeah. That seems to have been <laughs> a very simple thing to do, but how, how important it was for you yes. to have asked, been asked that question, if ever you were asked that question. Yes. Can you still kind of touch the feelings of, of that little girl, Molly? Can you kind of connect to her? Or do you feel like it's like a different lifetime at this point? It varies. It depends yeah. on how I'm, how I'm approaching it. So I know when I first started to write about any of this in college, I was very emotional. Um, I just felt raw because I was reflecting on those feelings for the first time. Um, there are other times where I feel very removed from it all, and I think some of that's the trauma. <laughs> I <can laughs> dissociate and separate right. from that raw emotion because it would be a lot to process at once. Sure. Um, I do think with with writing and rewriting some of these memories and experiences, it's made revisiting the emotions much less 
much less painful. Like I can, I can acknowledge more from a distance after having felt it. Hey, that was mm-hmm. hard. Um, but it doesn't knock me down every time. Right. Um, so it, it, it does vary. It depends on the memory. There are things that I think I protectively blocked out <laughs> mm-hmm. in terms of like the intensity of, of pain or right. the other things that I don't have a perfect memory. And I was seven at the time. So sure. Every single moment wasn't necessarily going in, and it was a, a traumatic circumstance, so you encode things differently. Right. Um, and I would think, I, too, with the trauma, sometimes you don't even recall certain aspects of it. Right, because, right. right. Though disorienting, because one of the most traumatic things I remember from that time I ended up writing about, and it's, <laughs> without going into gruesome detail, uh, <laughs> it was an, a needle getting switched out. Um, yes. Yes. I, <laughs> yes. Tell the tell us that that sounded horrible when I was yeah, reading it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was. Um, so I I had a a port a port cap uh, in my chest, and that was to facilitate um, different medications, and it just helps things get into your bloodstream rather than poking your arm all the time. Right. Uh, so typically, if I had a needle in for a while. They would switch it out and normally there was a break between because um, it needs to stay sterile it needs to whatever and there was one day where i had had the needle existing needle in for quite some time and they needed to switch it out and they needed to do it immediately so there was no numbing and uh no dialogue around what was about to happen and mm. it was both painful and shocking to have that occur and it was a very specific memory that i had carried with me, but also dismissed because I assumed, oh, I must be misremembering this. And and time and drama can do that. You can misremember sure. things for sure. Um, and I have done my best to cross-check all of my experiences that I did share with someone um, in writing. Mm-hmm. But the emotional truth of this for me was it was very scary and very traumatic, but I'm like, oh, it couldn't have been that bad because that will never happen. First time... <laughs> I shared that the the writing with my parents. Um, they were like, "God, I remember that day." And I was like, "Oh, it happened. It did. It was real." Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's how it went down. They're like, "Yeah, it was horrible." And I was like, "Wow." So that was a very intense <laughs> experience, both the memory, but then reflecting on the memory and for the first time taking it seriously because I had for so long just pushed down my emotional experiences thinking like, oh, I must be exaggerating. This must be right. Um So there's, there's waves of it. There's waves of reflecting on that time and things that still come up today and ways um, intense when I'm sick, for example, less so than right. I used to be, but like any okay. form of sickness, it used to be mm-hmm. if um, while I was in treatment, if I had a fever, I had to go to the hospital. So even though now I don't need to go to a hospital, if I have a hospital, if I have a fever, I'm just like, a regular cold or whatever right i get very right. tense because that was what i grew up the, living yeah. through different emotional experiences rise yeah. and that, yeah i mean the same. ptsd from that yeah uh, yeah i mean that's a huge thing that you have to manage in your life and and uh, your parents also i mean they they live through their own sort of form of trauma with this too and you know you're right at that moment with the port being the needles being replaced they were in the background and it's almost like they were a, this ethereal thing in, in the distance and so maybe that's also how you express that in the book so well because it's kind of like mirrors how you're really feeling asking yourself did it really even happen right. um so were they even there and it kind of comes across that way i want to ask about 
their you know experience through this if you can comment even quickly just for parents out there watching your child go through this has to be a form of like a torture um <laughs> and so yeah and so can you talk about maybe for speak for them uh, to some degree <laughs> <laughs> um but, and then you can actually put the words that you want in there uh <laughs> But just kind of like their recollections and emotions and, and their ups and downs and how they dealt with things. Yeah. Um, so to have the most direct answer, they'd have to speak. <laughs> yeah. All right. But it's, it's excruciating to watch someone you love go through something hard and not be able to do much about it. So I know that was hard for them. Right. Did they ever discuss with you like how they dealt with it, how they managed things? So part strategies of the challenge... that they use maybe... Part of the challenge is we didn't talk about this as a family until much, much, much later, despite the okay. fact we we're going through all of it together. Mm -hmm. As a person who has since studied child psychology and development, I can give some tips <laughs> on things that make a difference. Um, and right. my parents very much were doing their best and um, did do different things with me. Uh, but the, the things that I think stick most are just having communication when possible, um, which isn't to say forcing the child to talk about every thought and feeling, because that's not communication either, <laughs> but to just have that open line and to acknowledge and to have a space where you're able to have that pause of, how are you doing today? And sometimes how they're doing has nothing to do with the sickness. You know, it could right. be like, yeah, I had a hard math test and that's bothering me. Like mm -hmm. any, any communication in general goes a long way. Right. Um, and giving a space to validate feelings and um, hear them. And then I think on top of that, I know there are parents and caregivers who might feel helpless about what to do. And I think that's an important place to remember that they're not alone in it, both that other parents and caregivers have gone through similar things and can be a resource. And that also there are professionals who are ready and willing and want to support the family, whether that's um, some form of therapy or some form of like a support group or just general resources or something like this podcast that like they could pass that along to someone, mm -hmm. remembering that they don't have to carry everything by themselves. Um, because I think looking at it that way, it can become very, very overwhelming. And sure. you can just be like, I, I can't do that. And then it can turn into their own self spiral and shame. Sure. Um, and it doesn't need to be that way. So I think accepting and seeking help from other people um, and other agencies is tremendous. And um, to just show up how you can, when you can with the person you're with to just be as present as possible. And especially in the case of a child trying to roll with where they're at. Right. Um, and just taking that pause to listen. Mm -hmm. Did you feel like you had a fairly solid support system throughout? Um, I know you had your parents. Did you have, or how, <laughs> you're smiling, so maybe you can just talk about what that means for you. <laughs> sure. Emotionally, I'd say it, it wasn't really in place at the time. Um, though I was very lucky that there were still outlets for me um, that I think sustained me and got me much farther than I would have gotten without. Um, so some of those were just the other kids in the hospital um, to know that there were other kids going through the same thing and right. to not feel 
abnormal because we were all abnormal together, which therefore normalized it. And I had this one specific friend, Danielle, and we just were children together. We were children who happened to be in really, really difficult circumstances, but we decorated our room with toilet paper. We played on the computer and learned songs about bats and echolocation. <laughs> you know, like we just we were goofy together and mm-hmm. we needed space for that. And we were able to find it in each other. So that support of just having a break from everything being about cancer all the time was a relief. And then as I started to transition out of treatment, so around the time I was in fourth grade, um, I had a really, really incredible teacher, Patrice Monks, who is just a remarkable educator, a remarkable human, um, who has this ability that I believe largely is innate, but I also know she works at it, to just be present with kids, whatever they're going through. And she is someone who just was so warm and accepting of every person she encountered, especially children, that there was this one moment where I started to spiral because in health class we were talking about cancer and I didn't Mm -hmm. really know how to uh, integrate what the health teacher was saying alongside my own experience. And my teacher noticed and did something about it, which are two two different steps that don't always occur that she saw it in me and then decided like, I'm going to, I'm going to go sit with her. And she pulled me out of the room and we just spent time together. And I think there's a lot to be said for sitting with someone in their discomfort because it is uncomfortable to be around someone who's distressed. Sure. Um, But her choice to put that discomfort on the back burner and just be with me was, was everything. And she's someone I've continued to have in my life. Um, mm-hmm. for that um, but like those those moments those bits and pieces here were uh, very meaningful support yeah i think she stood up and spoke at the book signing and uh, is that am i correct possible the day is i just remember that she was one of at least two teachers there oh no that expressing... was a different teacher yes it was a different teacher okay yes. she was um, there but that's not the one who spoke okay yeah. Well, the expression of, of love and appreciation for you and recognition of your gifts uh, was was just all over that room. Um, and especially from those, what's that? It blew me away. I didn't anticipate any of that. That room, I mean, for people, just to get a sense, I mean, it's a fairly large room. How many people would you say it can, it can take in there? Over 200 or so? Yeah. Give or take, the room was was overflowing with people, and you know, <laughs> I was I was just so impressed. I I was like, wow, this is an event, you know, this is an event, and and I came to understand why that you're deserving of it, and just to see the people's expression of love for you, and basically, you know, the 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 arms that they were putting around you all day. Um, was just such a beautiful thing and so inspiring. And anyway, I just wanted to—I wanted to mention that it was a fairly—it was a unique, a unique situation, and certainly the most unique book signing I've ever been to. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, you talk about um, the the feeling of being other on the outside, and that led to some other potentially maybe the eating disorder, that sense of control, all those type of things. You got into running at some point. Did that? Did that step in as a, as a way to kind of start taking as a path 
kind of added that a little bit? Because I know even while you were running, you were still lamenting that you weren't good enough if you because you had injuries and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, you went seemed to go through ups and down waves of, of feeling stronger and then feeling right back down on yourself. Was running something that kind of did that for you that kind of started the ball rolling to, to move you away from that person who was seeing themselves as not good enough? So I would say that um, there were a number of outlets I turned to and started to explore more by the time I was in high school. And just having spaces to define myself through other lenses rather than this partly survivor, but at that point I, I associated survivor with like damaged and burden. Um, mm-hmm. rather than someone who had been through something and could be a source of empowerment or just a, a title of a change. So to then have something like running in the mix. And running was great in that it also got me moving, which was something I physically couldn't do for a long time. Um, it was very mm-hmm. limited in doing. And then on top of it, endorphins are amazing. So <laughs> I... <laughs> I came to really love running, and at first I was not measurably good at it. Um, I Mm -hmm. did have these injuries, I was very tough on myself, but having grown up, first not being able to like be in gym class in general, and not being in school in general, but then on top of that not having gym, and then even out of treatment, and I didn't realize this until much, much later, until someone told me, oh, no, this is what was going on, I couldn't run for a while. Like, I would try to run the school mile, and I would be putting my full effort in, and I would always go over the time that was expected, that benchmark. And um, I would get furious at myself for not pushing hard enough for doing this. And then someone's like, your body was still recovering. You had been full of (laughs) medications and all these other things for years and hadn't moved. So that was that was still healing, um, yeah. But to then get this movement and to see a difference and to feel stronger was something I had never encountered before. So that was right. a, a major shift to then have that as part of my life. It seems to me, as you're saying that, that just harking back to the system and how medically you're taken care of, you know, so you're being treated in that way. But the post. You're just, bye-bye, doors open and you're on your way. And there's no post-treatment, which is just as important um, and maybe, well, equally as important because now you have to live your life and manage what you've been through. I'm sorry that you didn't have that and you had to go through the stages that you had to go through. My hope is that your your experiences and the lessons that you've taken from them will maybe help others circumvent those things and get the help that they need sooner yeah. and not have to go to the, where you had to go to. Right. Um, That's you know, well. I can say knowing you now, you, you came through really amazingly. So <laughs> for, for the damage it did early on, you've, it never stopped. It never stopped you. You're a very, very strong willed human being um, and very f- strong person. You know, Molly challenges me during in between rounds to do pushups and uh, you know, it's not just, regular push-ups. Molly does like three or four different versions of push-ups to challenge herself. And so for someone who claims to be not have a lot of upper body strength, you, you pretty much do. <laughs> you defy that uh, every time you do, what, 60, 70 extra push-ups during an eight-round boxing. You know, if you add it up, you're, you're right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and uh, as I'm pushing along with you, I'm 
challenging <laughs> my level of like, wow, that's exhausting. Now I have to lift up my arms <laughs> and punch a bag. <laughs> but I love it. I love it. I, I love the challenge of it. Um, it's fantastic. <laughs> you, you approach writing a memoir in a very different way. You know, typically memoirs oftentimes anyway, you know, there's, there's the writing and then there's pictures put kind of like in the physical center of the book. You spread photos throughout, which I feel really helps to support the story. And then you dot this book with many poems that really are just wonderful ways to kind of give you extra further insight into what you were thinking at the time. And I also love that you that you actually have uh, replications of your ha physical handwriting from that time, you yes. know, um, that little child's handwriting. It, it makes the it makes the journey as a reader. It, it takes you in and grips you. And I have to say, you know, it took me until about page 70 or so before I could really sit for long periods of time to read this book, because it's a very emotional journey for the reader, too. I, I, I it was painful to, to see what you were going to read about what you're going through. And I just kept feeling like I wanted to reach out and help that little girl, you know. Can you talk about how you came up with that design? So I'll start with the poems, then I'll talk about the pictures. Okay. Um, so when I was first writing, um, both without the intention of sharing it and then later with the intention of sharing it, there were some memories that felt more like fragments or some memories where there was just a, a distilled feeling that I almost felt would be a disservice to put within the context of a scene in the way that most of most typical memoirs I've read or other parts of my book have the setting and dialogue and whatever it is. And there were just some things that I I felt like were were diluted if I added the rest of that around them. So I wanted to distill it down to this is what I felt, this is what was happening in as few words as possible. And um, I've now come to think of it in terms of boxing. I'm just like, you know, <laughs> refining those punches and you get them in and they were the most authentic way for me to say what I went through. So at first I resisted that because I thought, well, that's, that's not how books are written. <laughs> that's not <laughs> right. how it's to look. So I had been starting to lay things out, really finding that there were a lot of places for poems, but feeling uneasy about it. And I approached my mom, who is an artist in her own right. She does uh, a lot of calligraphy, watercolor, drawing, she also sings an axe, but <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. I went up to her and I was like, I don't know what to do. I'm trying to reflect on these memories and they're just not working in a, in a scene. Like they, they have to be a poem, but I, am I allowed to do that? And she goes, it's mm -hmm. your thingy. Do whatever thingies you want. And I was like, you know what, you're right. Because <laughs> ultimately what does it matter? Sure, um, right, exactly. You think about the way like someone like E coming, um, you have to know their traditional structure. That's, mm -hmm. that's how you get your foundation. But then to purposefully break that structure can be a, an opportunity to just redo <laughs> and revamp. It's and re and reinvent. Yeah, yeah reinvent. reinvent. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Why not? To... Yes, you know? exactly. Yeah. And, and ultimately, the, that was the question I came against. I was like, why not? Because mm -hmm. I think I shouldn't, but I want to. So I'm going to, and it's not so hurting anybody. To. So it became then that once I gave myself that permission, to express myself however I needed. You know, some some are poems, there's a there's a recipe, there are lists, there are uh, mm -hmm. 
check boxes of um, notes I would pass between me and my mom um, when I was in and out of the hospital. Of, like these games we would play that would very quickly transition to from uh, what's your favorite cookie to will I be okay? And uh, <laughs> it's just like right. all these moments. Um, I was like, I can't put that in a scene. It, it doesn't do its service mm-hmm. and isn't authentic in what I'm trying to say. Um, right. Whereas other scenes were fine within that construct. Mm-hmm. So that was the poems. And then uh, the pictures were something I struggled with initially because I didn't know if I was going to include them. I didn't know, again, traditionally, should I put them in the middle? Um, right. But as I gathered them all and started to lay out where they would go in a timeline, it became important for me to put them beside when they were happening because even as I started to drop them into the layout it was a very surreal moment of realizing looking at that picture of my seven-year-old self and being like she was feeling this because mm-hmm. as much as I have had my own internal internal narrative and looked at my writing from the past and whatever um your, your brain's your brain the whole time so I'm just kind of like oh like I was it was me but smaller I was like I was mm-hmm. so small that is a small person <laughs> Who's going through so much. And to then have those pictures, I think, dropped in adds that context of like, this isn't this isn't a 20 something year old living through this, because I am the 20 right. something year old writing about it. Right. Um, this was the child, this is what she looked like, and this is what she was feeling even then. Um, and it makes it so real for the reader. It's yeah, really yeah. and I think that may have been part of what was so challenging for me in reading it was seeing yeah. seeing this little girl. And what you were going through at the different stages it's just a, a really wonderfully impactful way that you you structured structured the book uh and again um i think people are going to find it unique in that regard um and helpful too because it's almost like in a sense like a pictorial glossary as you're going through it you know um and that's something that i think is helpful to really get to the the core of what maybe you were going through and understanding it so what are some of the things that you do today to stay healthy that you, you know, and, and, you know, are they things that surprise you to this point that you're like, wow, based on what, what, what I experienced? Um, but really, just generally, you know, how do you, how do you look upon it? Um, staying healthy these days, what do you do? So say the emotional, you want to talk about the emotional part first and then yes. get from there. Okay. Yes. So um, sure. talking about emotional health and well-being, um, therapy was something I didn't encounter until after college because... Um, it was not something talked about or offered to me in my childhood. And uh, by the time I got to college, I didn't really know if it could help me. I didn't, I also probably wasn't ready to talk about these things after so long of not talking about them. Sure. Um, but I uh, was definitely still struggling and uh, knew I had some things I wanted to work through. And I did major in psychology and knew the value of therapy. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, maybe maybe I should give this a try. <laughs> right. um, and it was a couple hit or miss uh, start to it. You know, got to find the good fit. And I also uh, was working around a little while, living in the city and then coming back to Long Island. Um, but I have since found an amazing fit. And... Um, this woman I work with, she would she would remind me to give myself credit, but I give her a lot of credit as well <laughs> for building this relationship and the safety and um, creating that space to explore what I felt then, what I feel now, um, 
and taking all of that with me. So I think that has been a huge piece of my emotional health, uh, my mm-hmm. mental health, is to have that um, as part of how I care for myself uh, right. week to week. I think that has enabled me to also form some really incredible friendships and those go a very long way as well just to have good friends in general is is wonderful Um, but it's also coming into a friendship or relationship with a foundation in myself um, that is aiming to be authentic and showing up as I am and then being met where I am and accepted as as that person um, has just opened the doors for being able to be more present with people. Um, so I think some of the social pieces have been really healing and, and fun and wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that goes a long way because you're just, you're just less confined to feeling like a filtered version of yourself. You, know, you can, you can be who you are and then see that that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, uh, right. It makes a lot and of other things. accepted for it. Okay, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, and then physically, and really, it's more about the guy, you accepting yeah. yourself. But it's nice yeah. that other yes, people accept it, it as well. It's yes, reinforced with with yes. good people, and right. and then you can do it in return as well. Um, exactly, which is it's always wonderful to to celebrate the people you care about. Mm-hmm. And then I say that writing and these outlets continue to be part of both my emotional health and then but like the physical outlets as well. It plays into the emotions mm-hmm. and then has made me physically feel stronger. Uh, and more capable in the world around me. So I mm. am a very active person. <laughs> um, <laughs> Mark knows. Yes, I, I do. <laughs> I box, I run, I uh, teach and take fitness classes, usually at least once a day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> usually several times a day. But at this point, because I like it, with the eating disorder and um, different tendencies, through high school and college, there were times where exercise was more of that punishment um, and mm-hmm. trying to control intakes and uh, shape and size. But I'm right. at a point in my own recovery now where it is this outlet and it's fun and it's, I saw something once that was like, exercise is not a punishment for what you ate. It's a celebration of what your body can do. And I was like, yes, that. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's great. So yeah. Yeah. And I, and I also would never, expect someone to live the life I do and be like, this is how you're healthy. Um, this is what works for me. And right. this is what makes me feel good in the world as much mm-hmm. as possible. Um, so my relationship with food similarly has been complicated. And I am very much of the mindset that it's not so simple as saying uh, eating a salad is good and eating ice cream is bad. I'm like, no, both can be wonderful or both mm-hmm. can be stressful. And, try to listen to what my body's telling me it needs and try to create spaces of understanding um, that food isn't moral. It's, it's, it's fuel, it's connection, mm-hmm. it's celebration. Um, so I, I try to eat in a way that I don't, I don't even want to use some of the words. Like I don't want to say balanced because that implies that yeah. there's going to be something that throws an, in, an imbalance um, mm-hmm. but that I try to, respect what my body's asking for and give it leniency. Um, just the fewer rules I have about food, the better based on my own recovery. <laughs> right. Um, right. And it seems to work. You know, I, whenever I go to the doctor and if I'm getting blood work done, they're like, your levels are good. I'm like, great. I'm going to keep eating pasta forever. Cause it works for me. <laughs> like it may not be the case for everybody, but I know that 
Right, when my right. body wants carbs, I'm going to give it carbs, and uh, mm-hmm. throwing guilt into the equation isn't going to change what my body's asking for. But, so, right, exactly. Uh, yeah, I was going to say you're athletic, so I mean yeah. that allows for that intake too. Yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, I agree. I mean, you have to you have to listen to your body, and uh, you have to enjoy too. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and allow yourself to do. do. Yeah, exactly. And and speaking of that, what I mean, along with my first impression of your energy, I was always amazed that you just seemed to take such joy out of what you were doing. You're always smiling, no matter how exhausted you're. You're always smiling. Um, well, during the workouts. Gets that out of me. I love it. Yeah, it's uh, it. There is a lot of joy to be taken from those those things because I mean, just when you finish, just the feeling that you've accomplished something that's challenging is yes. a wonderful wonderful feeling. How does it feel to be a survivor? of what you've been through? Uh, a good do you question. Even, do you know yet? You don't have to have an answer for it. I'm just... No, I, I, I'd like to try it. It's a good, it's a good challenge. Okay. Um, In 50,000 words or... Because <laughs> 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 I, I, in some ways, you know, that's, that's part of it. It is such a three-dimensional answer <laughs> that I had to put it in a book. Right. <laughs> it is It is ever-evolving. It is yes. um, It is good days. It is bad days. It is compassion. It is judgment. It's so many things. Um, but I think ultimately where I am right now, like a snapshot of this moment, um, would be that I think that right now, when I think about survivorship and being a survivor, I think less about the actual beginning of that survivorship, so to say, like I'm, I'm thinking less of the diagnosis, I'm thinking less of the sickness, um, less of what provided that label, and more about the voice I have now um, in the aftermath and the ongoing growth. Um, because survivorship and, and my diagnosis was that starting point, but there's just so much I want to say, <laughs> and <laughs> and I and I don't know if that voice that I feel connected to now for pretty much the first time in my life is about survivorship, really, um, or if survivorship, being a survivor, just challenged me so much into how I thought about myself and what I thought was okay to say and what I felt, and that shifted something in me to want to speak out, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much for exploring that, because I know it's it, it's not an easy, it's not an easy answer. Yeah, but I, I think the, the best um, questions that, that get at something unexpected, um, or that the, the questions that, that get us to challenge the way we think are not easy questions and don't have easy answers. And maybe they're the better questions because they make us really have to be more introspective and go deeper. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you for going so deep and in this conversation, Uh, apart from the technical glitches, this has been everything I'd hoped it would be and expected, uh, not expected, (laughs) but uh, imagined it would be. I can't thank you enough for the time and for opening up to everyone. And I really encourage everyone to to read this book. Um, it's beautiful and it's inspiring and there's so much to be taken from it. And um, do you have any uh, social media or anything that you'd like to promote or ways people can reach out to you if they want? Sure. Um, well, first of all, I want, I want to thank you for creating this opportunity to have these conversations. And I'm 
lucky and grateful to be one of them. And I know that you do a lot of this work and that you, you give spaces for people to think and ask these challenging questions to allow for depth and perspective and so on. I'm just grateful to, to know you and to know that you're out there doing that. So thank you. And thank you for thank letting you. me be a part of it. Oh gosh. Thank um, you for saying that's beautiful. <laughs> I really appreciate it. And it's, it's an honor to have you. It's an honor to know you and call you a friend. And um, it's been one of the nicer, more recent surprises in my life. So yes, I'm, I'm happy to share. I'm happy to share you with the world. <laughs> Feeling is absolutely mutual. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, so any, any, uh, any way people can contact you or anything sure. that you would like to promote or anything? So um, I do have a writing Instagram that is uh, not super active at the moment because I'm waiting for the next events to promote them and whatnot, um, mm -hmm. which will be happening in March and April. Uh, but that is Molly okay. Prep Writes. That's just all one word, M-O-L-L-Y-P-R-E-P-W-R-I-T-E-S. Um, <laughs> and then it's that same handle uh, at gmail.com if anyone everyone should reach out and touch base about something. Okay. Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And I'll see you uh, Sunday during the next push-up challenge. <laughs> That's the one. Can't wait. <laughs> All right, Molly, have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Once again, Molly's book is entitled Cancer Angst, and you can purchase it on Amazon or wherever you get your books. I want to thank you again for listening to this episode, and I hope you'll join me each week to hear about topics close to your heart and welcome fresh and informative insights into areas that are new to you. All music heard on today's show comes from Jason Shaw at audionautics.com. Remember to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Special Ed Rising and on my website, specialedrising.com. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. You can contact me directly with questions, comments, or if you're interested in parent coaching through my email, specialadvising at gmail.com, or my contact pages on Facebook or my website. If you'd like to share some of your success stories with the audience, please send them to my email. Let's show the world what's possible. Also, let me know if there's anything you'd like to learn more about. And until next time, peace and keep rising. Music